This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Barnes in London, April 2006. Thomas Hardy, The Return of the Native, Book Two, The Arrival. Chapter 5 Through the Moonlight The next evening the mummers were assembled in the same spot, awaiting the entrance of the Turkish knight. Twenty minutes after eight by the quiet woman, and Charlie not come. Ten minutes passed by Bloom's End. It wants ten minutes too to ground for Cantle's watch. And is five minutes passed by the captain's clock. On Egdon there was no absolute hour of the day. The time at any moment was a number of varying doctrines professed by the different hamlets, some of them having originally grown up from a common root and then become divided by secession, some having been alien from the beginning. West Egdon believed in Bloom's End time, East Egdon in the time of the quiet woman inn. Grandfather Cantle's watch had numbered many followers in years gone by, but since he'd grown older, faiths had shaken. Thus the mummers, having gathered hither from scattered points, each came with his own tenets on early and late, and they waited a little longer as a compromise. Eustacia had watched the assemblage through the hall, and seeing that now was the proper moment to enter, she went from the linhay and boldly pulled the bobbin on the fuel-house door. Her grandfather was safe at the quiet woman. "'Here's Charlie at last! How late you be, Charlie!' "'Tis not Charlie,' said the Turkish knight from within his visor. "'Tis a cousin of Miss Vyse, come to take Charlie's place from curiosity. He was obliged to go and look for the heath-croppers that have gone into the meads.' and I agreed to take his place, as he knew he couldn't come back here again to-night. I know the part as well as he. Her graceful gait, elegant figure, and dignified manner, in general, won the mummers to the opinion that they had gained by the exchange, if the newcomer were perfect in his part. It don't matter, if you be not too young, said St. George. Eustace's voice had sounded somewhat more juvenile, and fluty than Charlie's. "'I know every word of it, I tell you,' said Eustacia decisively. Dash being all that was required to carry her triumphantly through, she adopted as much as was necessary. "'Go ahead, lads, with the try-over. I'll challenge any of you to find a mistake in me.' The play was hastily rehearsed, whereupon the other mummers were delighted with the new knight. They extinguished the candles at half-past eight, and set out upon the heath in the direction of Mrs. Yeobright's house at Bloom's End. There was a slight hoar-frost that night, and the moon, though not more than half full, threw a spirited and enticing brightness upon the fantastic figures of the mumming band, whose plumes and ribbons rustled in their walk like autumn leaves. Their path was not over Rainborough now, but down a valley which left that ancient elevation a little to the east. 
The bottom of the veil was green to a width of ten yards or thereabouts, and the shining facets of frost upon the blades of grass seemed to move on with the shadows of those they surrounded. The masses of firs and heath to the right and left were dark as ever. A mere half-moon was powerless to silver such sable features as theirs. Half an hour of walking and talking brought them to the spot in the valley where the grass ribboned, widened, and led down to the front of the house. At sight of the place, Eustasia, who had felt a few passing doubts during her walk with the youths, again was glad that the adventure had been undertaken. She had come out to see a man who might possibly have the power to deliver her soul from a most deadly oppression. What was wild, Eve? Interesting, but inadequate. Perhaps she would see a sufficient hero tonight. As they drew nearer to the front of the house, the mummers became aware that music and dancing were briskly flourishing within. Every now and then, a long low note from the serpent, which was the chief wind instrument played at these times, advanced further into the heath than the thin treble part, and reached their ears alone. And next, a more than usual loud tread from a dancer would come the same way. With nearer approach, these fragmentary sounds became pieced together and were found to be the salient points of the tune called Nancy's Fancy. He was there, of course. Who was she that he danced with? Perhaps some unknown woman far beneath herself in culture was by the most subtle of lures sealing his fate this very instant. To dance with a man is to concentrate a twelve-month regulation fire upon him in the fragment of an hour, to pass to courtship without acquaintance, to pass to marriage without courtship, is a skipping of terms reserved for those alone who tread this royal road. She would see how his heart lay by keen observation of them all. The enterprising lady followed the mumming company through the gate in the white paling, and stood before the open porch. The house was encrusted with heavy thatchings, which dropped between the upper windows. The front, upon which the moonbeams directly played, had originally been white, but a huge pyracanth now darkened the greater portion. It became at once evident that the dance was proceeding immediately within the surface of the door, no apartment intervening. The brushing of skirts and elbows, sometimes the bumping of shoulders, could be heard against the very panels. Eustasia, though living within two miles of the place, had never seen the interior of this quaint old habitation. Between Captain Vi and the Yobrites, there had never existed much acquaintance, the former having come as a stranger and purchased the long empty house at Mistover Knapp not long before the death of Mrs. Yobrite's husband. And with that event and the departure of her son, such friendship as had grown up became quite broken off. Is there no passage inside the door, then? asked Eustasia, as they stood within the porch. No, said the lad who played the Saracen. The door opens right upon the front sitting-room where the spree's going on. 
so that we cannot open the door without stopping the dance. That's it. Here we must bide till they've done, for they always bolt the back door after dark. They won't be much longer, said Father Christmas. This assertion, however, was hardly borne out by the event. Again the instruments ended the tune. Again they recommenced with as much fire and pathos as if it were the first strain. The air was now that one, without any particular beginning, middle or end, which perhaps, among all the dances which throng an inspired fiddler's fancy, best conveys the idea of the interminable, the celebrated devil's dream, the fury of personal movement that was kindled by the fury of the notes could be approximately imagined by those outsiders under the moon, from the occasional kicks of toes and heels against the door, whenever the whirl around had been of more than customary velocity. The first five minutes of listening was interesting enough to the mummers. The five minutes extended to ten minutes, and these to a quarter of an hour. But no signs of ceasing were audible in the lively dream. The bumping against the door, the laughter, the stamping were all as vigorous as ever, and the pleasure in being outside lessened considerably. Why does Mrs. Yeobright give parties of this sort? Eustacia asked, a little surprised to hear the merriment so pronounced. It's not one of her better most parlour parties. She's asked the plain neighbours and work people without drawing any lines, just to give them a good supper and such like. Her son and she wait upon the folks. I see, said Eustacia. Tis the last strain, I think, said St. George, with his ear to the panel. A young man and woman have just swung into this corner, and he's saying to her, Ah, the pity, tis over for us this time, my own. Thank God, said the Turkish knight, stamping and taking from the wall the conventional lance that each of the mummers carried. Her boots being thinner than those of the young men, the whore had damped her feet and made them cold. Upon my song, tis another ten minutes for us, said the valiant soldier looking through the keyhole as the tune modulated into another without stopping. Granfer Cantle is standing in his corner, waiting his turn. Don't be long. Tis a six-handed reel, said the doctor. Why not go in, dancing or no? They sent for us, said the Saracen. Certainly not, said Eustacia authoritatively, as she paced smartly up and down from door to gate to warm herself. We should burst into the middle of them and stop the dance, and that would be unmannerly. He thinks himself somebody because he's had a bit more schooling than we, said the doctor. You may go to the deuce, said Eustacia. There was a whispered conversation between three or four of them, and one turned to her. Will you tell us one thing, he said, not without gentleness. Be you Miss Vi? We think you must be. You may think what you like, said Eustacia slowly. "'but honourable lads will not tell tales upon a lady.' "'We'll say nothing, miss. That's upon our honour. "'Thank you,' she replied. "'At this moment the fiddles finished off with a screech, "'and the serpent emitted a last note that nearly lifted the roof. "'When, from the comparative quiet within, "'the mummers judged that the dancers had taken their seats, 
Father Christmas advanced, lifted the latch, and put his head inside the door. Ah, the mummers, the mummers, cried several guests at once. Clear a space for the mummers. Humpbacked Father Christmas then made a complete entry, swinging his huge club and in a general way clearing the stage for the actors proper, while he informed the company in smart verse that he was come, welcome or welcome not, concluding his speech with, Make room, make room, my gallant boys, and give us space to rhyme. We've come to show St. George's play upon this Christmas time. The guests were now arranging themselves at one end of the room. The fiddler was mending a string, the serpent player was emptying his mouthpiece, and the play began. First of those outside, the valiant soldier entered in the interest of St. George, here come I, the valiant soldier, slasher is my name, and so on. The speech concluded with a challenge to the infidel, at the end of which it was Eustace's duty to enter as the Turkish knight. She, with the rest who were not yet on, had hitherto remained in the moonlight which streamed under the porch. With no apparent effort or backwardness she came in, beginning... Here come I, a Turkish knight, who learnt in Turkish land to fight. I'll fight this man with courage bold. If his blood's hot, I'll make it cold. During her declamation, Eustacia held her head erect and spoke as roughly as she could, feeling pretty secure from observation. But the concentration upon her part, necessary to prevent discovery, the newness of the scene, the shine of the candles, and the confusing effect upon her vision of the ribboned visor which hid her features, left her absolutely unable to perceive who were present as spectators. On the other side of a table, bearing candles, she could faintly discern faces, but that was all. Meanwhile, Jim Starks, as the valiant soldier, had come forward, and, with a glare upon the Turk, replied, If then thou art that Turkish knight, draw out thy sword and let us fight. And fight they did. The issue of the combat, being the valiant soldier, was slain by a preternaturally inadequate thrust from Eustacia. Jim, in his ardour for genuine histrionic art, coming down like a log upon the stone floor with force enough to dislocate his shoulder. Then, after more words from the Turkish knight, rather too faintly delivered, and statements that he'd fight St. George and all his crew, St. George himself magnificently entered with the well-known flourish, Here come I, St. George, the valiant man, with naked sword and spear in hand. Who fought the dragon, and brought him to the slaughter, And by this one fair Sabra, the king of Egypt's daughter? What mortal man would dare to stand before me with my sword in hand? This was the lad who'd first recognized Eustacia, And when she now, as the Turk, replied with suitable defiance, And at once began the combat, the young fellow took especial care to use his sword as gently as possible. Being wounded, the knight fell upon one knee, 
according to the direction. The doctor now entered, restored the knight by giving him a draught from the bottle which he carried, and the fight was again resumed, the Turk sinking by degrees until quite overcome, dying as hard in this venerable drama as he is said to do at the present day. This gradual sinking to the earth was in fact one reason why Eustasia had thought that the part of the Turkish knight, though not the shortest, would suit her best. A direct fall from upright to horizontal, which was the end of the other fighting characters, was not an elegant or decorous part for a girl, but it was easy to die like a Turk by a dogged decline. Eustasia was now among the number of the slain, though not on the floor, for she had managed to sink into a sloping position against the clock-case, so that her head was well elevated. The play proceeded between St. George, the Saracen, the Doctor, and Father Christmas, and Eustasia, having no more to do, for the first time found leisure to observe the scene around, and to search for the form that had drawn her hither. The end of chapter 5, Through the Moonlight.